These words, when you read them, they're disturbing words, uh, frankly, because we are such a distracted people. And the things that distract us, the vast majority of those distractions are about us. Whether it's work or whether it's play or whether it's money or whether it's children or whether it's activities, whatever it is, most of those things consume us because they are about us. And because that is repetitive in our lives and we have become a culture of self, we begin to have this tendency that we are the center of the universe. And once we begin to have that tendency, we no longer see God as the one whom we need, but we begin to actually think that God might need us. And that He is only there to provide for our happiness. And it's not too long after we're in that position that we become ingrown upon ourselves. Not only individually, but in this case with Laodicea, corporately, their admonition was, you have become ingrown. To the other churches, some had some doctrinal issues. Other had some tolerance, politically correct issues. Other, he uh, gives commendation for struggling and going through the persecution that they're going through. But here in Laodicea, He is addressing their ingrownness upon themselves and thinking that the church is all about them and not about him. And so he gives this admonition to them of wake up. I want a relationship with you. I want us to be intimate with one another. I want to be the priority of your life. I want to be the mission of your church. I want to be the singular thing that holds you together. I want to be and demand to be your Lord. And I will not compromise on that. In these verses, Jesus tells us that he commands either we will have a passionate, exclusive relationship with him, Or it would be better for us to be going in the opposite direction. But the worst thing that we could do is be engrown upon ourselves and think it's all about us. Because that will lead to a tepidness, a lukewarmness that will remain in these walls and concave upon ourselves in an implosion that will ultimately end up a cosmic vomit. Those are tough words. And yet they're not mine. And they're not even my take on it. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's really hard to preach about these te- this text. It's, it's, a very, it's a pretty direct text. It kind of just says what it says. How do you elaborate much on, I wish you were either really for me or really against me. But because you're really neither one, you make me sick. It's convicting. It's convicting for me. It's it's incredibly convicting to spend hours upon hours upon hours thinking through this text and, and having it boil in your own soul to, God, what does this mean? 
What would it look like for me to be in a relationship with you that's on fire? Well, Jesus gives us some hints within these scriptures about what does it look like to have this kind of relationship with him. We see it in the interaction that he has with this church here. The first thing I want you to see is that a a true relationship with him requires truthfulness. That a true relationship with Jesus requires truthfulness. Well, truthfulness about what? Truth about who he is and truth about who we are. So Jesus addresses this church in Laodicea. He writes, I want you to know these are the words of the Amen. Now, the word Amen is translated in several different ways, but the most common way that it's, it's presented in the Scriptures is truth. I want you to understand the words that, you are com- that are coming to you out of this Scripture are coming from not a truth, not a take on the truth, but the truth. And because He is the truth, He is the Amen, all things that He says aren't uh, up for definition because He is the definer of what truth is. Because He is truth. We live in a culture that wants to redefine everything, to deconstruct truth and then redefine truth. So that if, I, if there's an objective truth out there, then I want to, our culture wants to say, you know, that, that's really your truth. Let me redefine for you what my truth is so that your truth won't interfere on my truth. Right? And what Jesus is saying that it, here is that he is above that philosophical argument. That he is the definer of what truth for you and I is. Are, is. One of those. I am the great I am. I am the Amen. And then he explains what that means even in a more uh, derivative type of way. The faithful and the true witness. And it causes us to beckon to the three years of his walking upon the earth that he never faltered in his witness and his testimony of the reality that he was the Son of God and that he came for a reason. And the reason was for the redemption of mankind. And in the redemption of mankind, he planned for us to be with him forever. That in the way that the first Adam failed in subduing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying with the image bearers of God upon the face of the earth, the better Adam, the true Adam, had come, and by his will and by his authority, he would multiply and subdue the earth through his people so that the kingdom of God would be eternal and everlasting and ever-expanding. And this is who Jesus is saying that he is. He's not ambivalent about his nature. He's not on the history channel saying, oh, my disciples cooked all this up. He no directly is saying, I am truth. I am faithful. I am the true witness. I have come to earth to tell you about the Father. 
I've come to earth to show you the exact representation of the Father. I have come to express the Father's love for mankind as I hang on the cross. And I have come to give you complete authority, to know I have complete authority in the way that I take up my life and reign upon the throne of heaven. And Jesus was the true witness and gave testimony to that truth about himself that none of us can ever dispute. This is who he says he is. He is the one who is above all things. And then he says the truth about us. You say you're rich. You have prospered. You do not need anything. And then Jesus says, here's the truth. You're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. We have a delusional truth about ourselves that we feed into all of the time. That we can be self-sustaining. That we could we could be self-promoting. That that we alone are the ones who have the corner on what is right. That we can be independent. That somehow we are the beautiful one. That it's me and then there's everybody else. And we even believe that sometimes to the point of the words of, I don't need anybody else. I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, I'm pretty enough, I'm intellectual enough, I'm handsome enough, I'm bright enough, I'm rich enough that I don't need another soul. Jesus says, that's delusional. You're crazy. If we're going to have an intimate relationship with one another, you need to understand the truth about who I am, the great Amen, the giver of life, your God, your Lord. But you also need to have an honest evaluation of who you are. We see it in our funerals, don't we? The way we like to dress death up. We try to make it somewhat normal. We put a suit on the body, lipstick, makeup. Why do we do that? Part of why we do that is because we want to veil the truth. The death is bad. The death is ugly. 
but we don't want to admit that. The death is the punishment. It is the payment. It is the remnant of sin upon the earth that we brought. And because of that, though our spirits live eternally in Christ, our flesh will die. And there's nothing we can do to make it up. There's nothing we can do to make it pretty. There's nothing we can do to normalize that which is abnormal to us. And it's even there in our own dying that we say, look, it's, it's not all that bad. It's a bad thing, death of the flesh. But it's redeemed. And we will have new flesh one day. And we will not experience corruption. But the truth is that to be absent from that corrupt body is to be present with the Lord. The Amen said so. The one of truth said so. But he said the only way that you can have that is that if you understand and believe who I am. And that that consumes you. We must have an honest and truthful relationship. That God is God and He is eternal life. And there is no other life apart from Him. That God is the provider, the protector, the purveyor of all things. And that we are totally and completely dependent upon Him. For life. Not only eternal life, but for daily life. Not only for daily life, but for work life. Not only for work life, but for family life. Not only for family life, but for play life. Not only for play life, but for church life. And not only for church life, but for a silent, quiet life. That He is the Lord over every single element of life that there is. And we recognize and respond to Him Saying, Lord, yes, amen, it is true. I am totally dependent upon you for all things. I recognize who you are and I recognize who I am. And Jesus says, recognize that so that I may heal you. He continues on and says, I counsel you, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You see, your definition, my definition of what it might mean to be rich is not the same as Jesus. That Jesus has a a much broader, a more defining, a more everlasting riches that you and I are to be involved in and engaged in and be deluged in. More than this world could ever offer with its riches. It is the riches of God. It's the riches of heaven that Jesus wants to deluge you and I in. It's from this, where C.S. Lewis would get his famous quote, We'd rather make mud pies in the ghetto than have a holiday at the beach. 
How often our hearts settle for this delusion instead of the reality that we can come to Jesus and live with gold that's refined by the fire of His own suffering for us. You may have white garments so that you can clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. I think of my father, Adam, who so diligently wove together fig leaves for he and his wife. And I see the same DNA in me and others sometimes that we consume our lives with trying to sew together a garment of fig leaves so no one will know the shame of who we are and what we feel inside. That if we can just present an image to other people that we think they would like, that they would be intimidated by, or that they would be attracted by, or that they would think I'm important by, if I can just sew that together for myself, then I can hide the shame of my need to know my significance in Christ. If I'm just pretty enough, if I'm just skinny enough, if I'm just smart enough, if I'm just rich enough, if I'm healthy enough, the list goes on and on and on. If I can just sew that garment together, then the world will see me as being okay. And Jesus says, it's fruitless. Let me give you my robe of righteousness. I'll clothe you with the robe of the king of the universe. Why would we ever settle for less than that? Why would we ever want to live in less than that? Not only is the relationship require truth, but the relationship requires love. Love that gives and love that receives. Look at verse 19 with me. After Jesus has said some very difficult and, and hard things, His heart is filled with compassion that you and I might understand the motivation of His directness towards us. To those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. You know, Jesus loves you and I so much that he refuses to leave us where we are. That Jesus, in his compassion and his mercy, desires that relationship of intimacy so much with you and I that he chooses to intervene with harsh words sometimes so that we might wake up like that granddaughter He says, hold my face. Listen to me. All that stuff out there that consumes you so much. All those distractions that have a hold of your mind and have a hold of your heart. 
All of those things that are causing you such angst in your, in your heart. Those things at three in the morning that are waking you up. Hold my face. Understand this. I love you. I'll take care of those things that wake you in the night. I'll take care of that spot on the x-ray. I'll take care of that blemish in the bank account. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of where you struggle with worry and want. I'll take care of that part of your heart that seeks to be satisfied with addictions. Hold my face, people. Hold the face of Christ, people. Hold it tightly. Because He loves you. He intervenes on our, on our behalf and for our sake. It says, don't focus on that person that's next to you. Focus on my face. He says, in light of that, be zealous and repent. Love gives and receives. In a loving relationship, there is always giving and receiving. Jesus gives us Himself. Our part of the relationship is to receive Him. To receive that which is from Him. To seek His face. To believe as I'm gazing in His face, He will take care of all that is necessary with His hand. In the loving relationship that God has called you and I to, He's called us to be receivers of all that He has to provide. What about, but, huh? But what about? Will I? Could I? Will He? Should He? And then questions go on and on about what we might respond to that with. But look at what He says here in the promise that He asks us. He gives us an invitation to believe. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, listen to this promise. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here's the important part. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Paul would put it this way in Ephesians, that you and I are seated with him. In the heavenlies. The, the promise of this relationship is that the day is far rapidly approaching and so secure that it, it already is that you and I will reign with Him over all that is seen and unseen. I want you to notice something. The scriptures here that have been sometimes appropriated for evangelism and mission. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. We sometimes misunderstand. This was not an invitation to unbelievers. 
It is an invitation to confessing believers within the church. And Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Please take note who's doing the knocking. You and I are not knocking on the door of heaven. But God has taken the initiative of love and mercy and grace and come to your heart and to my heart even this morning, even at this address, even in this time, and says, Behold, I stand at the door of this church and I knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come into him or her and eat with them. What is Jesus saying? Is he going to be here for the picnic? Yeah, spiritually speaking, he will be. I ask this question of people sometimes that are struggling. Do you believe that God likes you? Do you believe that God likes you? The vast majority of the time, the response I get is, well, I I know he loves me. But that's not the question. The question is, do you know that he likes you for who you are? These verses are clear communication to a culture and a society of their time that would have heard this message loud and clear. You mean God's coming in to be part of my family? God's coming in to hang out with me? That God likes me? You see, in their culture... For a rabbi to come into the house and to have lunch with someone or for anybody to come into the house and have lunch with anybody in that culture meant this, your family. That there's an appreciation of the relationship that you have with that person that means I love hanging out with you. I want to be under your roof with you. I want to walk life with you. I want to have a peanut butter and jelly with you. There's no more clear communication that because of the sacrifice of Christ, His righteousness upon us, the gold of salvation that He has put on us, that we would walk with Him and talk with Him for all of eternity and reign with Him upon His throne, that Jesus' response to us in the promise is this, that He wants to fellowship with us because He likes us and loves us. And so he says, be hot for me. Be on fire for who I am. Have the relationship that you and I have be the center of all other relationships that you have. Because I promise you, if you do, I will let you reign with me forever over all things. If you will trust Him and what He promises in this, you will be with Him to enjoy all that is His forever. If we are a church that is consumed with that kind of heat, consumed with that kind of passion, so focused on the idea that our King reigns and He wants His people to come and reign with Him, we will transform this community. But we must believe it. We must be hot about it. We must apply truth to it.
We cannot just hear it and walk our own ways. The promise is this. It would be better for you to be cold than it would be to be lukewarm. I've said this to some of you before. I truly believe it in the bottom of my heart. Indifference is the highest form of hate. Indifference is the highest form of hate. You know why? Because indifference speaks, I don't care enough about you to even hate you. I just write you off as non-existent. How antithetical to being the community of grace that we are that we would be indifferent towards one another. How antithetical to the testimony of, to the world in our marriages that husband and wives would be indifferent towards one another. How irresponsible in our high schools and our junior high schools is it that our our teenagers would feel indifferent towards their parents and how absurd is it that Christian parents would be so busy so consumed with their own careers that they are indifferent towards their own households Jesus says, repent from that. Hear his words. He hasn't spit you out of his mouth yet. He said he was about to. There's time. Today may be that time for you. Today may be that hour of God. I refuse to live on my own and inwardly and ingrown from this point forward in my life. I will never do that again. I repent, O God. I hear your discipline. I hear your reproof. And I zealously repent. I will not take these words lightly. Let me just... Many practical examples of how this could work out. But let me just share with you four. How can I, how can I begin to move into this relationship with Jesus. The first thing I would say is prayer. You've got to spend time with Jesus. You've got to pray to Him. You've got to communicate. For many of us, we think prayer is some formal ritual. Some of us have been taught that it requires accessories. Some of us have been taught that it requires another person to pray in our behalf. The Scriptures teach us neither of those are true. The Scriptures teach us that because of this goal that Jesus has provided, because of this robe that Jesus has provided, you and I can approach the throne of grace boldly. And we can talk to our Father. If I don't talk with my father, how can I ever expect to hear a response of my father? 
If I'm indifferent towards my father, how can I ever expect that my father will respond? Two would be spend time in the Word. Now, you may not like it. You may struggle with it. I may not like it. I may struggle with it. But we have the absolute authority, objective truth of God and His sovereign will has placed this revelation before us for us to know who we are. I'm sorry, who He is who we are in Him, and what our duty is towards Him. And it it is His preferred way and sovereign way of communicating to you and I. You may say, well, that's a book written by men. I want to challenge you. Read it. And then after you read it, come and talk to me. I think your opinion will change. But don't read it for the sake of reading it. Pray, Lord, I'm coming to you. I want to hear from you. Let your spirit open my eyes that I might see. Open my ears that I may hear. Open my heart that I might receive. And open my will that I might apply the truth that I've learned into life. Pray. Be in his word. Worship. Worship Him. Worship Him in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. The song's going through my head right now. Worship in the morning, worship in the evening, worship in the summertime. Too often in our homes... Let me rephrase it. What kind of marriage would it be that only shows up on Sunday to talk over some things with one another and say, hey, that was great. See you next Sunday. What kind of union would that be? What kind of intimate relationship is that? Lord, I'm busy. I've got a schedule to keep. I'd love, I'd love to spend some time with you, but things are going on in my life. Lord, I, I, love, I love you, and, and I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time worshiping you, though. got things to do. There's pots to boil and, and things to do. That's what Laodicea was doing. Jesus said, I see your works. I see you've got busy lives, but here's what I see about your works. They're all about you. You're ingrown on yourself. And you're so blind you can't even see it. You're so consumed with the shiny objects of the world and the things that are in your head that you can't see the truth and the reality is worship Him Come to Christ and fall on your knees and tell Him how wonderful He is. Not because He doesn't know how wonderful He is. He already knows that. 
But because in our confessing the wonder of who He is, our hearts begin to open up to the reality of who He is. And we acknowledge that truthful relationship that you are God and I am in need of God. And then finally, here's the tough one. Fellowship. Every, every, every Christian should be in some type of life group. Every Christian should be in some type of fellowship group that is fellowshipping with other Christians. You say, what does that have to do with being hot for Jesus? Because the way Jesus sovereignly designed his church of which he's so passionate about, is that you and I really do need to be together. And the best way that we experience God is when we experience him together. The best way that we learn about him is that when we learn together. The best way that worship happens is when we worship together. We're not going to do it, promise. But we have talked about, let's rope off some pews, let's rope off the back so that you'll be together. Why would we want that? Why would we do that? Because there is a synergy. There is a community that when we are together, we sing better. When we are together, we feel it better. When we are together... We experience the fellowship and the synergy of the Holy Spirit more acutely. Why do you think that is? Because you and I are designed by our Maker, the truth, the Amen, to give testimony that way. That He makes us a body, not a group of individuals. And because of that, we must engage with one another. Exhort and encourage one another. Lift one another up, not tear each other down. Speak words of encouragement and hymns and songs and praises. I don't know about you. I I get enough discouragement from just watching the news. It's hard to come into the body of Christ and hear discouraging words. And it's antithetical to what the scriptures have taught us to do with one another. It's completely the opposite of the command that we have to how we're supposed to speak to one another. You see, to be hot for Jesus also means that we're hot for his people. that we really love being part of the body. And we recognize our need for what He has created to find our life. It is the invitation to believe what Jesus has promised. Maybe today's the day.